0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are newer to our church... My name is Dave. I am one of the other three pastors, and uh, it's my privilege to serve here as lead pastor. I've been here since 95, and uh, it's been an interesting experience to stay in one place that long and see how the world around you changes and it comes back to being the same. And um, I think there's something powerful about staying put. It gives you a view of life, you don't get in other ways. And I don't know why I feel let to say that, but I feel like someone needed to hear that this morning. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and this morning we've come to a pretty um, familiar passage for a lot of people. It's a story that many people outside the church have heard, an analogy that often gets thrown about. And I want to read from you out of John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Here's what it says. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the word of God. <clears throat> now realize we have to be careful anytime we talk from scripture in the language of death. Because death is not some faraway concept. It's a concept, it's a truth that has touched so many lives. And with that touch has come great loss, great pain. In many cases, it's defined our lives. So when we hear Jesus speak in the language of death, we need to be very careful how we understand what exactly it is he is saying. I want to unpack this familiar story for you, and I hope that out of it you'll realize That the message Jesus is bringing is one of the most life-giving messages that we can imagine. This past Christmas, it came to our attention, and every year, I don't know if you know this, but my whole extended family gathers at my mom's place, my mom and dad's house in Libertyville. I don't know why around Christmas it stops being my dad's house, and it becomes my mom's house. I think it's because my mom's Christmas spirit, she's like Santa Claus's Asian wife. And something happens in that house around Christmas time. She just casts her touch over everything. And then the whole extended family across lines of marriage and everything, we all gather like 50 people in one house. And it came to our attention that one of our relatives had never seen It's a Wonderful Life. You know how it is when you're supposed to do something and then you find out someone you care about has never done it? All of a sudden, it became absolutely necessary for all of us to watch It's a Wonderful Life just so we could make him watch it with us. And what's funny is everyone who's so outraged realized it had been a really long time since we'd watched it, and as we watched it, the story became clear again for us. It is, of course, the story, by the way, as I'm watching the movie, the whole time I'm going, when does this dude's life start getting wonderful? Because it's like a really sad, sad story. It's a frustrating story. It's a story, of course, of a man named George Bailey. And he's not some spineless schlep who just, is like, I don't care about my life. I have no dreams. He had dreams. He had visions and ambitions for his future. He couldn't wait to get started. And he was at the very beginning of his life. But the story of George Bailey is that every time he was just about to launch into his dreams and his ambitions, the needs of others encroached. And because of the kind of person he was, he couldn't ignore the needs of others and be selfish and still be true to himself. And so as a result, George Bailey, time after time, had to put his own dreams on the back seat in order to be there for the people that he cared about. Eventually, because he did that so often and for so long, and because it didn't look like anyone was grateful or anything was changing, he reached a breaking point. You know the story. And finally he says to his guardian angel Clarence, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never been born. And Clarence, of course, grants him a picture of what that might look like. Have you ever wondered in a moment of self pity, if I was never born, would it even make a difference? Would anyone even miss me? So Clarence, he, he, or George Bailey asked a question which most of us at some low point in our lives have asked Do I matter? If I disappear tomorrow, would anyone miss me after a week? I think about that. You know, I had in my, in my home office, I have Johnny Cho's duffel bag still hanging from a hook. I see it every day. And I realize how quickly we do pass from one another's memory when we're not around. And yet the mark that people have left and that we leave on each other, it really is important and significant. So George gets to go back to his life, but it's a life where he was never born. And no one recognizes him. And he begins to see how different everything is simply because he was missing from the picture. And by the end of the movie, of course, it's a very happy movie at the very end. It's a terrible life until like the last 10 minutes. And then it's a wonderful life. Isn't that kind of the story for all of us? You wonder what all of this is about. It's so frustrating. My life feels so insignificant. It seems like everything I dreamed of never really comes true, and does it matter? Do I matter? And he discovers, like we will all discover at the end, that if we live a certain way, it does matter. We do matter. We do make a difference. We do touch people's lives. Now, George Bailey didn't do any of this for a love of God. We don't know that much about his faith, but we do know this he was driven to this kind of life simply by a love for his family and his town and even then it made a huge difference in the lives of others but this dovetails so well with the story of jesus our savior what he was like how he lived and died and how he then taught us to live i don't think it's in any coincidence that this is a movie most people watch at christmas time not just because there's Christmas that appears in the movie, but because I think that George Bailey's story so beautifully captures the heart of something important about the gospel of Jesus. And that is that the greatest impact we make, the greatest fruit that our lives bear, are not born by grasping at life, the best life we could live now, but it's, it's grasped by way of death. That it is not the people who tried so hard to live to the full that leave a mark, but it's the people who are willing to die to themselves that leave the most lasting impression. Everybody knows who Mother Teresa is, but no one knows who the luckiest man on earth is, who the happiest woman on the planet is. No one knows that because no one cares. The person who has had an awesome experience and sacrificed nothing is so unmemorable. But the people who lay down their lives willingly for others, that is hard to forget. I'm not saying we should pursue a life of dreariness and suffering just for its own sake. But I think what Jesus teaches us is that the willingness to die to yourself for the God and the people you love is absolutely central to what it means to follow him as a Christian. I want to set the table for the context of this passage because we dove right in in a place that needs some context set. So when you look at a little bit earlier in this chapter, in verses 9 to 11, (coughs) what we find is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from death. We remember that, right, last week, where he just by speaking the command his friend Lazarus comes out of a grave and the the story of this miracle had spread like fire. They were in a village called Bethany just outside on the outskirts. You could call it a suburb of Jerusalem and word had quickly spread to Jerusalem that here was a man who calls dead people out of graves and they come out. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard that some guy claiming to be the son of God was bringing dead people to life in Milwaukee, I guarantee you that I would be in my car that moment going to check this out. I think Harvest is full of people like that. We wouldn't just be like, well, check the internet. We'd be there. Like, I got to see this. If this is really happening, I'm there. And people were flocking from the big city to this little village of Bethany to see this dead man who is now breathing and to see this man, Jesus, who had performed that miracle. They were so impressed when, in fact, they verified with all the townspeople, yes, Lazarus was dead. Like four days dead, he should have been smelling terrible, and he walked out, shed his grave clothes. Go talk to him right now. And Lazarus was like, yeah, I'm very alive. It's so weird. And that made such an impression on people, they realized this is not just a great teacher. This is something else. This man, Jesus, is not your average rabbi. And so word spread ahead of him, and when Passover came around, you know, faithful Jews would journey as, as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his entourage traveled there. And as they got there, they realized news of what he'd done preceded him. And so people had lined the streets near the gate into the city. And they were lined up. And it says that a great crowd that had come for the festival, meaning the Passover, heard that he was on the way in. And they lined the streets and they waved palm branches, which is the way you would greet royalty when they were coming in after a great triumph. A victorious uh, warrior king who had come back after a conquest would be greeted this way. And they said, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. These palm branches people were waving. This is the event now that you may have heard this term Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday just before Easter Sunday. So Jesus travels to Jerusalem, and his disciples think, wow, we're riding high. We've just seen that our teacher, who we thought we knew, was a he's not an ordinary dude. This guy raises dead people, and now everyone else sees what we've seen, that he's something special. Look at the greeting that we're getting as we roll into town. They think they're going to celebrate a triumphant Passover feast. But what Jesus knows is he's entering town to carry out the last week of his earthly life. I don't know what it would be like if God told me the exact date and manner in which I would die, how that would define the last month, the last year of my life. Jesus is entering the very last week of his life. That's why I have studied and read the account of that last week over and over and over in my life. Because when you know that you're going to die, the way you choose to spend that last week is so instructive to how we should live every day. And Jesus enters the city knowing something very significant is going to happen at the end of this week. Now, it also turns out, and this is where we pick up our text from this morning, that it wasn't just Jews who had flocked to Jerusalem. There were a lot of non-Jewish foreigners in town. They were generally just called Greeks. Greeks were not just people from Greece, Greek citizens with Greek passports. There were anybody who wasn't a Jew, who didn't belong there, was an outsider, and was in town. And these foreigners, you get the hint from the fact that um, they made it past Philip and they made it past Andrew, and though both those guys brought them brought him these guys to Jesus, and so you get this suggestion they're not just ordinary Greeks or Gentiles, they are people of significance. The suggestion there is these are people of influence, maybe people of resources, people that are good to have in your corner. Like if you're thinking about throwing your hat into the ring for a mayoral race, a gubernatorial race, a presidential race, you want to meet people who aren't just really enthusiastic but dirt poor, great, give me your one vote, but other than your one vote, you're not going to help me. You want to meet the kind of guys who go, I would like to donate $6 million to your campaign. I have a network of thousands, maybe millions of people I influence. Those are the kind of people you want in your corner. So these guys are excited because they feel like finally our star is rising with our teacher. He's finally getting the recognition that we always knew he deserved. This is the moment to strike. And now it's not just Jewish converts. Here are these foreigners who who think that Jesus is someone of note and they want to check him out. And so they bring these foreigners to Jesus. You see what's going on is for the disciples who follow Jesus, they are on the uphill climb. Everything is great. There's a crescendo or a rising in their followership of Jesus. It's like that moment in the early part of a church's history where everything is up and to the right. You know what I'm talking about? More and more people are coming. The sermons are awesome. The singing is great. Our band is great. The kids' ministry is great. Everything is so full of enthusiasm. You know what I'm talking about. 10 a.m., there's 180 people in the room. What is going on? And you feel the electricity in the air. It's not just me. It's all of us. We feel it together. We're caught up in something. And that's what the disciples are feeling. Our teacher just raised a dead man. That means this is not a kingdom built on words. There's power here. The kind of power we can't explain through science. Power that seems like it is of divine origin. Now our own fellow Jews are recognizing who we follow. We were the first dudes. You know how validating that is when you were like the first one to discover a band and all of a sudden like 80,000 people are like, oh, they're the best. And you're like, I knew that eight years ago. I, I, I saw them at this little dive bar. I don't know who you guys are. Come, Johnny, come lately. You know that feeling when you were the first in and you discovered this little hidden gem? That's what they're feeling. We followed you when you were nobody, when you were a carpenter's son from Galilee. That's as insignificant, fringe, blue-collar, unpowerful as a God in Jesus' day. And we followed you even then, and now look, everyone knows who you are. And we are right there in your inner circle. In fact, if you look back at John, uh, verses 9 to 11, it says that because of Jesus and because of Lazarus, many of the Jews were losing faith in their religious leaders and turning to Jesus. So they're seeing that in masses, people are saying, our leaders have nothing to offer. You are the real deal. Now, even foreigners are seeking him out. So for the disciples... This is the moment they've been waiting for. So you you can imagine how gratifying it was when Jesus says now that these Gentiles are brought before him. Guess what, guys? The hour has come. You know why that's such an important line is because up until this point, every time Jesus' star was rising, he would always say, the hour has not come. And they're like, what? What? What are you waiting for? If you really are the son of God and we're, start, we're trying to spark a global movement, this is the time. If we had been Jesus' strategic consultants, we'd have been like, you are doing it all wrong. You can, every time he would heal someone or perform a miracle, and they were like, oh my gosh, you're the son of God. What do we say to him? Shh, don't tell anyone. You want to talk about bad marketing strategy? And so I'm sure his disciples like, Jesus, why are you shushing those guys? Shush the Pharisees. Tell these guys to go spread the word. That's free advertising. We need to get people on board. And Jesus kept saying the phrase over and over, it is not yet the hour. The hour has not come. What hour are you talking about? But they knew. They knew that the hour he was referring to was the moment when it was time to go. It's go time. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And that moment had never come, no matter how obvious to them it was that this was the moment to strike. I see so much of the world's wisdom creeping into the kingdom of God these days. You know, the way we build Christian organizations is the way everyone builds every organization. Look at the curves, study the numbers, check the metrics. Go for full engagement marketing. It's hard these days to tell the difference between a Christian leadership podcast and a a secular business leadership podcast. The same principles are at play. And I just think if Jesus had come today, all his advisors would have been confounded by the way he built his kingdom. But finally, he says to them, Guys, the hour has come. Just imagine what they're they're like. Can you feel that? You've all felt that, right? When you're just about to go to Disney World and you're a little kid, it's 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 happening, and we are on the inside track. We're right there with him. What kind of speech would you expect Jesus to give right then if you were one of his inner circle? Here's what I'd be expecting to hear. Hey guys. You saw me tell Lazarus to come out of a grave, and he did, right? Yeah. You saw the hero's welcome I got at the gates coming into town. And now Philip and Andrew are telling me, prominent Gentiles want to get to know us too. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise an army. I'm going to build the greatest kingdom Israel has ever seen, and you will be my princes. Are you with me? Ready yourselves. They'll be like, yeah. That's what I'm picturing. I'm like, come on, Lord, say it. We're ready. What does he say next, though? The hour has come. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I don't watch you, but if I were Philip and Andrew, it's like, ugh. What is with this guy? Every time we're winning. You know, I, I picture DJ Khaled would have been really drawn to Jesus. You know, all we do is win. Every time they're about to win, he's like, no, let's just die. Let's lose. Let's be quiet. Why at this triumphant moment when it's best positioned for him to make his move are his next words about dying? Well, here's what he's saying, because it's so important we understand this correctly. Think about what a seed is, because what he's saying is the seed is my story. It represents me, and it represents you. A seed by itself is a capsule of potential. What a seed is, is a compressed version of something greater that could be. That's what a seed is. If you have ever started a business and you got seed money, you know you're not hoping that that seed money is all the money your business is ever going to see. It's the starting money. It's what catalyzes you. It's the thing you jump off of to launch something. Seeds are nothing more than compressed forms of something else, something greater, something more or future. But if you take that seed and leave it just as it is by itself, a seed alone is one of the most insignificant things you can imagine. How many of you like sunflower seeds? Yeah, I... I Jeannie knows, because I, like I, I buy them at Costco by the giant bucketful. How many of you, when you're eating sunflower seeds, you drop one and you, you pause everything and you go searching for that seed you dropped on the ground? <laughs> James Akasaka would go looking for that lost seed. The rest of us are just reach the bag and find another one, because a seed by itself... Is a meal for an insect. That's spot as valuable as a seed left as a seed is going to be. A seed is nothing more than potential until something else happens. A seed becomes not a seed when it's planted in the ground, water comes in, and a biological process begins where the, the shell of that seed cracks open and it bursts in half like in the movie Aliens. And the shoot comes out And the seed dies and becomes what? A sprout. A seed that wants to stay a seed is already everything it's ever going to be. A seed that never wants to crack open. It goes, Mama, I don't want to be buried in the ground. I don't want my shell to crack open and something blast. Okay, sweetie, you can stay a seed, but a seed is all you will ever be. You already are the totality of your story without this. And Jesus says, look, I know what you guys are all thinking. I could preserve my life. I have power and authority. No one can come here and jack me up. No one can come and and murder me. That is not a power anyone in the universe has. If I wanted to keep living, I'm going to keep living well into the next week. But if I do that, then all I am is another man in the panoply of great men who have lived in history. And the world does not need just another great man, another great example, another great leader. What the world desperately needed was a savior, not just another leader. History is full of great men and women. I love reading biographies. There are so many worth reading, so many human stories worth telling. But Jesus understood that if he did what they wanted, that's all he would ever be. And humanity wouldn't have a savior. The greatest work that Jesus ever did in his life, he would do through dying for the sake of others. And just in case they miss his point, he goes on to say further, that's how it is in my whole kingdom. That whoever so loves his life, he can't bear to give up anything. He clings to it. She holds on to it. Like the little seed who says, Mama, I don't want to be planted in the ground and crack open. I want to stay just as I am. Safe, prosperous, whole. I don't want to change. I don't want to give up anything. This is what I like. This is where I'm happy. This is where I'm comfortable. I want to stay right here. And He says, if that's what you want then the fullness of life which my kingdom offers can't be yours. What he meant in verse 25 is that there are two lives onto which everyone who sees and knows Jesus is connected. And they're like two trains that are on a track going in the opposite direction, and you cannot lay hold of both of these lives for long. There's a transitional stage where I used to be attached to this old life and now I've laid hold of this new life and there's tension growing. Do you remember that time if you're a new Christian? I remember that time I was in college and there was so or high school, there were so many things that I loved about this old life. Chief among them was speeding. I loved so much driving fast. There were many other things I won't talk about that I also really loved about this old life. And though I love this new life, I was like, how do you choose? How do you choose? And what Jesus is saying is you cannot hang on forever to both lives. They are what a good teacher would say are mutually exclusive. Do you know that term? It took me until after college to finally understand what that term meant. Like People would always say "Like it's mutually exclusive. I would go, yes, of course. I had no idea what it meant. It meant you can't have both. One excludes the possibility of the other. This life, the full life which Jesus promises, that which he calls eternal life, is not just about where you'll be when you wake up after dying. It's not just about heaven and hell. It's a quality of life, a nature of life, a center of life that's radically different than the life everyone starts out with. It says if you want to lay hold of that life, It is mutually exclusive with the life you once lived. You can try desperately to hang on to both, but it will rip you apart. Maybe an illustration. And The more I thought about this illustration, I thought, it's a stupid illustration. But in a very simple way, it might help you emotionally to connect to what I'm talking about. I have this really weird relationship with airline miles or travel reward points. I think Jeannie's frustrated because she understands. I have this weird psychology about it. I love having miles. I feel like a millionaire. I, you know, I, that's a word I'm making up. Like I feel like, cause I've managed to gather around three hundred and fifty thousand Chase Travel Reward points. I, I don't know if you, you're not showing enough respect. That's ballers, like, <laughs> Dad. That's like, hey, I could literally go anywhere on Earth. Y'all still don't understand what I'm talking about. I've never had a ton of money in my life. But having those miles and seeing it every time I log in, it just makes me feel good. You know why? Because I love travel. I love potential. I love daydreaming about all the things those miles could be. I turned 50 recently and I told my wife, we're going to go on a trip, a trip of a lifetime. Never pulled the trigger because I can't bear the thought of making a choice, using those miles, and go. that was the trip. It's over. So I'm now 51, still no trip. Still all those miles. It's weird. They have no value in and of themselves. They're just bits and bytes in the computer. But I can't bear to lose them. What kind of fool loves having miles (laughs) and dreads using them? And I realized that I love the idea of it so much. I was living in a really weird psychological limbo. And then something pulled me back into reality. Here's what it, here's what it took. This summer, three out of my four children are going to graduate from something. Zoe will graduate from junior high. Elijah will graduate from high school. Noah will graduate from university. And Jordan just is awesome. Awesome. So we thought, wow, with three of our four children about to have this major milestone, and with Noah leaving university soon, and soon probably leaving our home, leaving our lives, living in another continent, you know, I remember what it was like my nuclear family of origin began to dissipate, when I realized that is no longer the center of my life anymore. How weird that felt to say my family is not the center of everything anymore. I was moving on. I had my own place, my own car, my own money. And that's going to happen to our family very soon. So Jeannie and I were lamenting this, and we thought, why not use those... So, <laughs> we should do one last big hurrah, a family vacation for the history books. Because this might be the last time we get all six of us together in one place. So, of course, we immediately said, what's the happiest place on earth that we've been to? It was Maui. So we checked out Maui and said, it can't be, because... <laughs> I could use all my points, and we could fly two of us or something over there. It's ridiculous. So then we set our eyes on Cancun. Cancun, this place. And I kept looking at the pictures, thinking about my whole family together, one last big thing, and and I realized I actually care about time with my family more than I care about being a millionaire. And so, and I couldn't do it, so Jeannie had to do it. She booked the flights, (laughs) and I came home and saw like three-quarters of our points just decimated. She had the strength to do it, I didn't. But I just realized that's how it works. You treasure something so much that in and of itself has no real inherent value except what it could be. And until it's converted to what it's meant to be, it by itself is nothing. Miles are nothing until those miles are converted to a trip. Then those miles find value. Such a stupid illustration, right? But if you really think about it, that's the way so many of us live. I'm going to guard this life because it's everything. It's not everything. It's so stinking short. It's so fragile. It's so full of this. If you're guarding this with all your might, this life on earth with everything you've got, you are fighting a battle you're sure to lose. Yes, this world is full of beauty and wonder, but there is a world and a kingdom far greater which you have come to know through Jesus Christ. He says, yes, you could guard this short-lived, temporary thing with all your might, and if you hang on to it, It is all you will have at the end. But what if you realized that by dying to this, you could lay hold of a life that is truly life. Life that is eternal. Life that is more deeply satisfying than anything else you can imagine. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, Or serve me. You must go where I am. A lot of people, instead of saying Christian these days, they use the term Christ follower. Are you a Christ follower? I think that's a great shift in language, but it's very indicting because you can't be a Christ follower unless you are following Christ. Amen? Just because you admire him doesn't make you a Christ follower. That just makes you a Christ admirer. To follow Christ means to follow Christ. Christ, just think about that for a second because if you want to be numbered among those who belong to Jesus of Nazareth you have to be someone whose life is described as a following of this man who is God that where I am I ended up here because he walked ahead of me and I followed him here And Jesus seems to suggest that this is the true mark of being born again and belonging to him. It's not just longing for him, fondly remembering him, wishing you had him, loving him, admiring him. It is also following him, going to the places he goes, living the way he lived and dying the way he died. The greatest impact Jesus made in his life was through dying and then taking up his life again. And he invites us to do the same thing. Do you find that today you are desperately clinging to your best version of life now? I think that is such a natural instinct. I find myself doing that on a regular basis. I'm not going to Cancun because I want to suffer, am I? I I just got done telling you I'm bringing my family to Cancun. What we're picturing, what we're painting is not a picture of doom and gloom and chosen despair. But life does call us on a regular basis to voluntary death to ourselves. Now, be very careful. Jesus is not talking about the kind of deaths imposed upon us. There are deaths that we die, which we can't help. We don't choose. They are imposed upon us by the brokenness of our world, by the tragic turn of events, by the sins of others. Those those deaths, as we endure them in a way that brings honor to him, can be life-giving. But that's not the kind of death Jesus is talking about. It's the death not chosen, the death imposed upon us. He's talking about the way that we choose to die because we've laid hold of something greater. Many people I know are valiantly fighting to stay alive in Christ while everything around them is dying. Death has been handed to them, and they're making their best of it. I applaud you if that's where you are. Please don't feel discouraged by the words of Jesus or my words if that's where you find yourself this morning, is things are dying, and you're trying so hard to hang on to God in the midst of that. You're doing the right thing if that's how you're... Approaching it. But, listen to what Jesus says, because in, the, in, in a couple chapters back, he says, this is why the Father loves me, because I sacrifice my life so that I could take up true life again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Here's what he's saying. In a couple of weeks, a bunch of people with power... It's going to appear that they killed me. They falsely accused me, imprisoned me, flogged me, and murdered me in public. That's what it's going to look like to everyone, but that's not what's happening. No one can take this life from me. They even mocked him, and they didn't realize what fire they were playing with when the soldiers mocked him. Why don't you call down a bunch of angels to save you? He's like, oh, if you only knew. I could call down a legion of angels with flaming swords and semi-automatic rail guns. I just, I like to imagine angels carry rail guns. (laughs) Dealers of death. He could have stopped all of it just like that. He's saying it's going to look to you like I was weak and they took my life. But that's not at all how it plays out. I was strong. And I gave up my life. And I did it voluntarily. I guess the challenge of Jesus' words this morning to us are not how do you endure the death imposed upon you? But are you, because he has shown you his kingdom and something more, are you regularly laying your life down? Voluntarily choosing to die to yourself for the sake of God? and for the sake of others. Does that describe the way you approach life? Are there people around you whose lives will be radically impacted if you chose on your own, not because of nagging, not because of guilt, not because of terrible consequences, but because you looked inward and you looked upward and you realized, I'm living only for me. I need to change the way I live. I need to learn how to die to myself. The foundation of Jesus' kingdom is life that emerges out of dying. And if that's the way he laid the foundation for his kingdom, there isn't really a way for us to participate in that kingdom without some element of learning how also to die to ourselves the way he died. So the question I'll leave you with is, what in your life do you need to die to in order to be fully alive in Christ? Fully alive to God and to the people you care about. As I say that, please don't feel beat up by God or by me. We're all so complicated. Many of us are dying to ourselves in some very important ways. And this challenge doesn't negate that at all. But is there more dying which we need to learn? So that out of our death to self, this fullness of life can begin to sprout out of the ground. I love the illustration that Jesus gives that a seed that stays a seed is only a seed. But a seed that lays down its life becomes a plant from which much fruit emerges. And out of that fruit, many seeds emerge. And out of those many seeds, a field is sown. Every one of us wants to leave a mark in the world, to be fruitful, to make a difference. We speak in that language of significance and impact every day. And Jesus says, I feel what you feel. But if you want to make a kingdom impact in my kingdom, you'll make that impact through learning to die. And out of that death, he will produce much fruit.